morning, everyone. Well, clearly not everyone. Good morning, half of you. Uh, we shall soldier on here. Um, it is the last in the series on Joseph, and uh, obviously we could do much more. I feel constantly in this series like I'm just a stone skipping over the surface. Um, as I mentioned last week, one of the amazing things about the story of Joseph or the account of Joseph, and even by saying that I'm missaying it, the account of the generations of Jacob and his brother and Joseph and his brothers, is that there's really not a wasted sentence. Um, you could pick any couple of paragraphs or any couple of sentences out of any chapter and preach a sermon on it. And so you could spend weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and months in Joseph and really never stop mining out the gems that are in here. Uh, but uh, it's a big Bible, and we've got to get through it all before I retire. So um, we've got some things to cover. Uh, this morning, um, the topic is going to be on forgiveness. And really, when you get into chapters 44 and 45, and then a little bit into 50 when you look ahead... Uh, really the culmination of the account of Joseph really focuses very hard on forgiveness. And so that's what we're going to be looking at. But I just wanted, before I get into forgiveness, to just touch on or wrap up a little bit of last week on repentance. Because we talked last week about repentance, and I don't know whether you noticed, but we never actually got to the point where we found out whether Joseph's brothers actually repented. We, we looked at the testing. We looked at what God was doing to draw them to a place of repentance. We understood uh, what Joseph was doing as he was putting them through those tests, but we don't know whether it actually worked or not. So before we get to forgiveness, I just wanted to wrap up that idea of repentance. And at this point in these chapters, what you'll notice is that the camera lens has certainly pulled back again from Joseph onto the wider uh, population of his brothers and his father and his whole family, because these are the this is the account of the generations of Jacob. It's about it's not really the account of Joseph. He's not even really the hero of the story. Uh, it's not really what ends up happening to him. It's about his whole family and what God is doing in the nation of Israel. And so as the camera pulls back, it it pulls back to the brothers, and then it kind of shifts its focus to Judah in these chapters. And Judah, more than any of the other brothers, gets a lot of attention in this account of Jacob and his sons, and there's a good reason for that. Judah is not the eldest son, but he is, in the story and in the account and in the family of Israel, Judah is now the new head of the family, for reasons which I'll go into later. But you remember that Judah was the one who decided that it was a good idea to sell Joseph as a slave. And... Uh, he did that for selfish reasons. There'd be no blood on his hands and there would be a pocket full of silver. And you may also remember that Judah is the one who, in his own sort of family drama, uh, ends up sleeping with his daughter-in-law. Remember in chapter 38, this is the Judah we're talking about. And to be fair, on the one hand, he didn't know at the time that it was his daughter-in-law. And on the other hand, he was on a business trip and he did think that she was a temple prostitute and offered her a goat for the experience. So... Yeah, that's kind of, that's Judah. That's who we're talking about. And uh, as God tests the hearts of the brothers through Joseph, we see that it's, it's Judah who stands out among them, right? In chapter 43 and 44, you see that it's Judah that accepts responsibility for what was said to Joseph. It's Judah who answers to his father. It's Judah who pledges Benjamin's safety. It's Judah who pleads with Joseph on behalf of his father and brothers. The narrator in these chapters is deliberately shifting the camera lens firmly towards Judah. 
And that's important because we see in 43 and 44 illuminated in Judah two clear pictures for us to see. This is why the narrator is doing this. This is why the camera is turning to Judah because he is going to be important in the story of Israel to come. And there's two clear pictures for us to see here. The picture of repentance on one hand, that is that we do see that there is a transformation in his worldview, in his behavior, in his understanding of rightness. And then that picture of repentance is then followed by a second picture, a picture of substitutionary sacrifice. And in the last verses of Genesis 44, summarized the end result of all that God's testing through Joseph and the repentance of the brothers is sort of exemplified in Judah. And as Joseph demands that Benjamin be left behind with Joseph and, and not return with the brothers, this is how Judah answers. And this is how we get to repentance and how we get to substitutionary sacrifice. He answers in Genesis 44, For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying... If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. And now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord. And let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. So you see the picture that... God is now painting in the life of Judah. Here is the brother who 22 years ago sold the favorite son Joseph into slavery for his own deceitful gain. But now Judah, standing before Joseph today, is proven by testing to be renewed and redeemed in a whole new person. This Judah, 22 years later, is willing to give himself up as a substitutionary sacrifice in order to save the life of the new favored son, Benjamin. Judah says, I'll bear the blame for the rest of my life. Let me stay, let him go. And so this is the picture of Judah, and in Judah, the repentance of the brothers. And it's also a picture of this substitutionary sacrifice. And that's why the camera is focusing on Judah. Because Judah is going to have a great, 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 many times great grandson who is also going to lay down his life as a substitution in order to rescue his brothers, Jesus Christ. The seed comes through Judah. Judah is the promised one. Remember God's promise, this story that God is telling us through the nation of Israel. He said in Genesis 3.15, even to Eve, that there would be a seed of daughter Eve, who would eventually crush the head of the serpent. And that seed or that offspring must be preserved from generation to generation. So who is the seed? Is the seed Ishmael? No, God says it's Isaac. Well, after Isaac, is it Esau? No, God says it's Jacob. Now Jacob has 12 sons. Which one of these 12 sons is the promised seed? Only one line can bring us to the Messiah. Well, Jacob has a favorite son, Joseph, but Joseph is not the promised seed. It's Judah. And in a manner of foreshadowing, he identifies himself as the offspring of promise by offering himself in the place of the son who the father loves. And so we'll get more into Judah actually in his genealogy in a couple of weeks because I'm going to kind of not continue the account of Joseph but carry on through Genesis as it leads to the promised seed of the Messiah, which we celebrate at Christmas. And so we'll learn some more about Judah in a couple of weeks. But the good news here is that the testing has worked for our purposes in this account, 
right? Joseph's testing has worked. Judah is repentant. His brothers are transformed. They're not the same people that they were 22 years ago. They actually do stand for rightness, and they are willing to lay down their life to do what is right. And so the repentance is evident. And now we look at the other side of repentance. We look at forgiveness. In Judah, we have that beautiful picture of substitutionary sacrifice, but in Joseph, we have an even more astounding picture of God's unreserved forgiveness. And there's a number of lessons for us here on the biblical forgiveness to look at. So let's look at true forgiveness. And the text that we are looking at is Genesis 45, 1 to 11, and just unpack what it shows us about forgiveness. And uh, so immediately following Judah's offer of self-sacrifice to save Benjamin, Jesus sees the change in his brothers, how they love Benjamin and they love Jacob, their father, and, and he just can't take it anymore. This is the last straw for Joseph. He's been struggling through this whole number of encounters and his heart is ready to burst at this point. And the first 11 verses of Genesis 45 will show us what we need in terms of forgiveness. Let's read God's word together. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. (laughs) 22 years later, this is the last person they wanted to see. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have there. I will provide for you. And there are yet five years of famine to come so that you and your household and all that you have do not come into poverty. This is Joseph's now response to his brothers. So when the brothers are confronted with the one whom they sinned against, they are dismayed and distressed. And and that's where we all are when we finally acknowledge our sin before God, that, that we've sinned before him. When we confront Jesus, we realize he's the brother that we've sinned against and that we and that without forgiveness, that's where we would stay. We would be like the brothers. We would be stuck in dismay and distress unless there was forgiveness. But there is true biblical forgiveness. And Joseph exemplifies for us what biblical forgiveness is and then what we should do as we forgive others. So first of all, let's just look at three things that are sort of put together in pairs for you. True forgiveness does not forget but instead counts and pays the full cost. Now notice here that Joseph did not forget what they had done. He says, I am your brother Joseph, who you sold into Egypt, verse 4. And then he says again, you sold me here. Joseph does not forget what his brothers had done. And, And this first thing here just kind of destroys one of the most important mistakes that we make about forgiveness, and that is that forgiveness requires forgetting. 
right? That if you're going to forgive somebody, you then also have to forget. And and I'm just telling you, please let that idea go. Nowhere in the Bible does it tell Christian believers to forget when they forgive. It's not in the Bible anywhere. The Bible doesn't say that we forgive and forget. It's God that forgets our sin, really meaning that God does not accuse us with our sin anymore. God forgets our sin, but he doesn't ask us to. In fact, it becomes clear the more we read about biblical forgiveness among Christians that remembering how we have been sinned against is actually a requirement of being able to forgive properly. We won't forgive properly unless we're actually able to remember the offense against us. Biblical forgiveness is primarily defined and experienced as a canceling of a debt. That's how the Bible, over and over and over again, teaches us about forgiveness. It says it's a debt that is canceled. It's a debt that is paid. And we could look back at our summer series at the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18 who was forgiven debt of millions of dollars by the king, you remember? And then he turned around to his fellow servant and wouldn't even forgive him a hundred dollars. So he got forgiven millions, but he wanted to hold a guy accountable for a hundred. You could look at that. It's the forgiveness of a debt. Or we could look at the book of Philemon in which the apostle Paul is asking a friend of his to forgive one of his servants who ran away. And he says in verse 18 of Philemon, he says, if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. He's saying, I get it that there is a debt between you two. This servant has run away, maybe even stole stuff when he ran. We don't know the full account. But Paul says, whatever that is for you to reconcile and have forgiveness, if there's a debt, I'll pay it. But that debt has to be paid in order to be forgiven. Or we could look, of course, to the work of Jesus himself on our behalf. Paul describes it in Colossians 2.14. He says, He is canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Biblical forgiveness is the canceling of a debt. And so forgiveness can't happen if we pretend to forget the debt. The debt isn't forgotten in biblical forgiveness. It is accounted accurately. It's tallied up and it's paid for. It's not forgotten. It doesn't magically disappear. It's chosen to be paid for. And if we think forgiveness means forgetting, then that tends to mean we think that somehow the debt just is going to magically disappear or the damage is going to be magically repaired. Or We know in our relationships with people and when we have something to forgive, when there's an offense against us, that forgiving them doesn't just make it magically go away. The debt is still there. The cost is still there. The payment still has to be borne. And so biblical forgiveness is actually remembering the offense but being willing to pay the full price for it. If, for instance, if you back my car into my car in the parking lot and you smash up the rear fender and you break the window and then I come out and I say, it's okay, I forgive you, just give me $2,000. I didn't forgive you, right? It's okay, you backed into my car, it's okay, I forgive you, just, you know, we'll settle up, probably be a couple of grand. That's not forgiveness. Forgiveness would be me looking at the damage and adding in the time and the inconvenience of having my car in the shop and considering also taking a full account probably of a decrease in future resale value, and then saying to you, you know what, I forgive you. Just walk away, don't even worry about it. You don't owe me for the damage, you don't owe me for the future loss of resale value, you don't owe me for the inconvenience of having the car in my shop for a week. I forgive it, it's done. That's forgiveness. I don't forget the fact that my car is wrecked. In fact, I have to total up the cost very accurately to understand what it is that I'm forgiving. 
If I just quickly say, oh, it's okay, I forgive you, and then I get to the shop and I realize it's $10,000, then i got to go back and say, you know what, this is costing me more than I thought. I want to unforgive you a little bit <laughs> so that we can share the price of this debt that has occurred because of your actions, right? And that's what happens if we forgive too quickly, or that's what happens if we forgive without taking into account the true cost of what it is that we're forgiving. We can quickly say, oh yeah, that's okay, I forgive you, and then you realize, oh, that kind of damaged my reputation a little bit. Oh, you know, that hurt our, you know, now I don't trust you as much. Oh, you know, actually, you know, can I unforgive you a little bit? Because I didn't really take account for what it was that I was forgiving, and I don't really mean it. And this applies to every kind of forgiveness. And I think that most of us, if not all of us, continue to live day by day in kind of a weird state of half-forgiveness or wanting to claw some forgiveness back from people because we never have really done the serious work of looking squarely at the harm or the offense that was done to us and made an account of it and remembered it and consciously chose to pay the price for that offense. And so we just live in this state of half-forgiveness. Maybe somebody has told a secret that you didn't want out or somebody has spread false rumors about you. It costs you reputation in that community. It costs a loss of trust and close fellowship. It may have cost you friendships. You will never biblically forgive until you count that cost and choose to pay it. Sometimes we're sinned against in a way that fundamentally changes our lives. Someone may do much more to us than just damage our car or even our reputation. Things might happen and people might do things that deal a crushing blow to our marriage. They may cause harm to our children. They may cause us to lose our job. Something might happen that alters the course of our career, where we have to live, where our family is. That damage never magically disappears. Once that offense happens, that cost has to be borne. True forgiveness does not forget. It counts the cost and chooses to cancel it. True forgiveness, biblical forgiveness, says I will bear the cost of what you have done because it can never fully be repaid. It can only be forgiven if our relationship is going to be restored. How could Joseph's brothers ever repay him for the sin they had committed and everything it cost him? How are they going to give him 22 years of his life back? Joseph understood the cost of forgiveness that he was offering. It cost him 22 years of his life. It meant slavery. It meant prison. It meant growing up in a foreign country without his family. Do you think Joseph can get his brothers to pay him that back? There's no way. The only way that offense is going to be dealt with biblically and truly is if Joseph fully accounts for the cost and forgives it, cancels it. He understood the cost of his forgiveness. And God knew the cost he would have to pay to forgive our sin. Jesus knew the cost he would bear on the cross in order that we would not have to pay for our sin. So one of the first mistakes we make in forgiveness is thinking that there is no cost rather than the reality that there is a cost that we are choosing to bear. So biblical forgiveness does not forget. It counts everything in order that the cost can be borne and the person that you are forgiving is set fully free from their debt and there's no little lingering forgiveness that you want to take back or have them pay. So if you have people in your life who you think owe you for what they have done, then you're living in unforgiveness. You're waiting for that debt to somehow be paid by them and you haven't really forgiven it. Which leads us to another mistake we commonly make in our unbiblical or false forgiveness. Secondly, forgiveness does not seek vengeance, but relies on God's sovereignty. So on the one hand, it doesn't seek vengeance. On the other hand, it does rely on God's sovereignty. 
There's really only two types of people, people who have learned to truly forgive and people who are slowly building up stores of resentment and bitterness, right? That's either way it goes. You can't be both. You can't be forgiving on one hand and not, and, and not storing up resentment or unforgiving on the other hand and not storing up resentment. You're, you're doing one or the other. You're either forgiving people or you're storing up little bits of resentment and little, bit, little bits of bitterness that then manifest themselves, and then think about it, if, if we don't forgive or if we only half forgive, then we invariably are, have resentment against somebody. We say things like, oh, I forgive you, and then under our breath we mutter, I just never want to talk to you again. Right? We say, I forgive you, but you're going to get the silent treatment for me for in the next few weeks. Right? Because we're not really forgiving, we're actually just storing up vengeance. We think they need to pay. I forgive you, but our friendship, that's over. You know, and what's really going on here is two things. One, we, we want to make them pay, so we already know it's not true forgiveness because true forgiveness pays the price. But secondly, at some level, we're thinking that it's our duty to punish them because it's not fair that they get off the hook. Right? How many people struggle with that in forgiveness? Right? The number one thing you start thinking about forgiveness, you think it's not fair that they get off the hook if I forgive them. They should have to pay something because it's just too easy for them. Forgiveness just lets them go scot-free, and that's not fair. And that kind of thinking says we basically think that it's our job to make sure they pay the penalty for their sin. I'll give them the silent treatment. I'll withdraw my friendship. I'll tell everybody what they did so that they have to pay a social cost for their actions in the community. You know, because this person has sinned, they need to pay for their sin. But wait a minute. Isn't it God who deals with sin? Isn't sin dealing God's job? And so you see that when we do these things to not let people off scot-free in forgiveness, what that really means is that we think God isn't capable of doing his job and we have to do his job for him. You you hear how messed up that is, right? Like God's not going to do a good enough job dealing with this person's sin. I've got to pitch in a little bit and give them the silent treatment, right? Because Jesus dying on the cross wasn't enough. They also need me to be grumpy at them to make sure that they really understand how bad a person they are. Right? It's just, it's silly, right? But we do that when we don't forgive people. We think they need to pay. And we need to help God to pay for their sins. And Joseph actually alludes to this two or three times in terms of letting God deal with it. He alludes to it about five times in Genesis 45, but I'm just going to peek ahead at Genesis 50 where he actually spells it out quite plainly for his brothers. And in Genesis 50, this is later on now, Jacob has died. The brothers are nervous again because they thought maybe Joseph's been faking it the whole time. Maybe he's just been nice to us because dad was still alive. Now that dad's dead, let's go tell Joseph that he's supposed to forgive us. And so they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave us this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgressions of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. He's like, I cannot believe you guys. He's like in tears that they're still afraid of him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear for am I in the place of God? Right? You can't say it any more clearly. Joseph says, you don't have to fear me. All that stuff you did to me, you have nothing to fear for me. Am I God? God will deal with you. I don't know how God's going to deal with you, but it's not my place. So understand this. In biblical forgiveness, it's not our place to judge the other person. It's not our place to make sure that they pay some sort of penalty for their offense or for their sin. 
Whatever it is that they have done, it's our job to forgive them. We don't have to stand in the place of God and make sure that they're punished enough for whatever it is that they did. Romans 12, 17, 19 says, Repay no one evil for evil. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So instead of seeking vengeance, true forgiveness understands and leans on God's sovereignty. So if we're not to take vengeance on the one hand, what is it that we are supposed to do? What's the other side of that coin? What it is, is that you trust in God and his sovereignty. How is Joseph able to just let his brothers off the hook for their actions? Why do they get away scot-free and pay no penalty to Joseph for ruining his life? It's because Joseph has come to understand, perhaps better than anyone, the reality of God's complete control. And look how he explains his answer in Genesis 50, the very next verse after he says, am I in the place of God? He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So we don't take vengeance because we trust in the sovereignty of God. Joseph understood this. Forgiveness is a theological issue. Our ability to forgive other people for what has happened to us or what they've done to us in our life is linked to our ability to understand the sovereignty of God and how he's working in our life. If you don't trust in the sovereignty of God, that he is absolutely in control of all of the outcomes in your life, whether they are good, whether they're evil, whether other people have done them to you, whether you've brought them on yourself, whatever it is, if you do not absolutely, fundamentally understand the sovereignty of God, then you are going to struggle with forgiveness. Because you're going to think, I've got to do something about this thing that was done to me. Because it was out of the ordinary. It wasn't in God's plan. It took us all by surprise. It wasn't supposed to happen. No, because if you understand the sovereignty of God like Joseph understands, he knows that even getting thrown in a pit and sold into slavery and tossed into prison for years on end is all part of God's plan. He understands that he can forgive because God's going to take care of the vengeance and it doesn't matter because God prepared him for those days and in fact those were the days that God had planned for him. Even using the actions and the evil of others. Joseph says, God sent me before you to preserve life in verse 5. And then in the 10 verses that we've read, he repeats it five times. God sent me. It was God who sent. God made me. God has made me. Five times in 10 verses, Joseph tells his brothers in Genesis 45, it's God who is doing this. He absolutely understands the sovereignty of God. So in other words, he says, I know you sinned, but I am not afraid that God does not have this accounted for. God has my future accounted for. I know that God is always working things for good, even evil. That doesn't mean there wasn't a price to pay. That doesn't mean that Joseph doesn't have to account for the debt that has been incurred and then forgive it. There is a price and it needs to be paid. It doesn't mean that there is no burden that had to be borne. There is no injury that had to be accepted. But the foundation for Joseph of his ability to forgive is that nothing has ever happened to him that God did not prepare him for or that he did not attend to work for my good. And that's how we have to look at the sovereignty of God in relation to forgiveness and forgiving others. When we are fully confident in the sovereignty of God, we can forgive far more easily. Got to do it. Got to go to Romans 8.28 here, right? You know it has to come out. Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Joseph understood this 1,800 years before Paul wrote it. 
right? Joseph understood that the sovereignty of God removes any need for him from vengeance and any need for him to worry about what the outcome of this offense is. We're daily paying the price of sin, our own and others, paying the price, bearing the burden, receiving the wounds of others from time to time, just as Jesus bore ours. That's what it means to be a Christian. Scripture says, by his stripes we are healed. That means by the bloody lashes on his back we are forgiven. And in our small way as Christians, we model Christ as we bear the wounds of others and we trust God to deal with our future. And so if you have people in your life that you are still punishing through little microaggressions or little micro-unkindnesses or maybe macroaggressions, I don't know how it's going in your life. But if you have people in your life that you are still just kind of picking at, then you're still living in unforgiveness. True forgiveness does not seek vengeance, but trusts in God to do his job and care for our future. Thirdly, forgiveness does not wait to be asked. It acts first and consistently. So true biblical forgiveness doesn't wait to be asked. On the other hand, it takes the first action, and in fact, it it acts constantly. Notice here that Joseph did not wait for them to ask for forgiveness. We, we have this other mistaken idea, along with the idea that you forgive and forget. We often also have this other mistaken idea about forgiveness that we only forgive people after they ask for it. It's like, oh yeah, I'm willing to forgive him, but you know, he's got to come and ask me. If he doesn't come and ask me, then I don't have to forgive him. Yeah, no, that's not biblical forgiveness, Right? And sometimes we even take it so far as to say, not only am I not required to forgive, but I'm not even supposed to forgive them. You know, because that would be somehow unbiblical if I forgave them before they asked. And so we look at this and we read this story and we think, Joseph, you're not acting very biblically here in the Bible. And, uh, you know, we'd have to say the same thing to Jesus, wouldn't we? Luke 23, when he's going to the cross. It says in verse 33, when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. Jesus says, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. And so if they don't even know what they're doing, then how could Jesus ask God to forgive us if they're supposed to ask first? Forgiveness in the Christian life has to come before and regardless of repentance and the asking of forgiveness. The Apostle Paul, quoting Psalm 14 and 53, says in Romans 3.11, he says, No one understands, no one seeks God, all have turned aside together as they have become worthless, and no one does good, not even one. So clearly we need God to forgive us before we're even able to ask for forgiveness, according to Romans. Then he says later on in 5.8, he says, But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So... If we get forgiveness wrong in this area, we might tend to think that God is somehow sitting in heaven saying, you know, I might do something, but, you know, you got to come to me first. But God already knows that our hearts are so deceitful, that we are so desperately wicked, that no one seeks after God. No one goes after him. God had to take the initiative. God sent his son while we were still sinners. He took action. God so loved the world that he sent his son. It was God that loved and he sent so that we could respond. God takes the initiative in forgiveness. Biblical forgiveness takes the initiative. It recognizes that there's a debt and something has to be done about that debt. 
So forget the idea that people need to ask forgiveness before we offer it. In Matthew 18, 21 to 22, Peter asks, he's asking Jesus, he says, do I forgive my brother seven times? And Jesus says, no, 70 times seven. And he doesn't mean do the math. Okay, it's 490, but that's not what he means. He means a lot. He means every time. You, mean, you just always forgive, even though this person has offended you many other times. Do you think Jesus understood that within the body of believers, among his disciples, we would continue to sin each other against each other a fair bit? He tells Peter, Peter words it, he says, how many times will my brother, singular, sin against me and I forgive him? So Jesus is fully expecting individuals to sin against each other at least 490 times. And he says, forgive, 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 forgive. You imagine having a kid, a neighbor kid, who throws his baseball through your window every Saturday. 490 weeks in a row. (laughs) Right? And God says, Saturday, forgive him. Next Saturday, crash, forgive him. Next Saturday, crash, forgive him. Next Saturday, crash, forgive him. 490 weeks of broken windows. And Jesus says, forgive. It's not unusual that we offend each other. Peter, the disciples, Jesus, Paul, they're all expecting us to offend each other on a regular basis. And Jesus' answer, biblical forgiveness, is you just keep forgiving. It's meant to be immediate, and it's meant to be ongoing. It's meant to be constant. We're to live in a constant state of forgiveness. And as we do that constant state of forgiveness, people see something in the church that takes on a whole new name. And we have a name for this state of perpetual forgiveness. And the name that we call that is grace. Immediate and ongoing perpetual forgiveness is what grace is. Grace is just another way of describing perpetual forgiveness. Someone is rude to you, we react graciously. People let us down, we show them grace. People offend us, we're gracious in our response. Grace is just instant forgiveness. Whenever we are gracious to people who have done something against us, we've just immediately forgiven them. And it manifests itself in the church as grace. And this is what we have to understand. God is doing this for us all the time, every second. Do you think that you measured up to God's perfect righteousness and purity yesterday and that you didn't need his forgiveness? Do you think you measured up to God's perfect righteousness and purity while you were getting ready for church this morning? And didn't need his forgiveness? Do you think you measured up to God's perfect righteousness and purity in the last five minutes? Five seconds? God sustains his people in a constant state of perpetual forgiveness. Have you asked forgiveness for every sin in your life? Or even of every sin this week? And yet God sustains us by his grace. Perpetual, ongoing forgiveness is grace. We're sustained in it by God. You lost your temper yesterday? Christ died for that. You thought a demeaning thought about someone? Christ died for that. You felt resentment or self-pity at some point in the last few days because the world didn't give you what you wanted when you wanted it? Didn't get that parking spot at the front of the food land? Christ died for that. 
You put your hope in something other than God for a little while. Christ died for that. God forgives our wandering and our rebellious and idolatrous hearts moment by moment, and we call that never-ending forgiveness grace. That's what forgiveness is. Biblical forgiveness is grace. And so in your life, if you cannot easily forgive people for daily carelessness or thoughtlessness, or you carry old incidents that happened around with you in your memory, and you hold those things against people, then you are not living in forgiveness. You're living in unforgiveness. Because forgiveness is the gospel. It's the perpetual state of grace that we live in because Christ went to the cross. Those are the three things we need to learn about forgiveness. But I just want to close on this one application here. Because this is important, and you might have to put your thinking caps on here. If we get forgiveness wrong, this is how important forgiveness is. If we get forgiveness wrong, it will ultimately affect and undermine and distort our view of and our relationship with who God is. And this is what I mean by that. See, if, if you are an unforgiving person, that means that when other people offend you, you store up little bitternesses towards them and you know maybe you want to give them the silent treatment or you want to punish them or withdraw your fellowship from them somehow. If you're an unforgiving person, not, not filled with a lot of grace, if that's how you think that we're supposed to deal with offenses, then what happens when in turn you sin against God? How do you think God deals with offenses? Well, naturally, you start to project onto God how you deal with it. And so then you start to think, well, I've offended God. He must be giving me the silent treatment. You know, God is getting back at me with these little microaggressions in my life. That's why I stubbed my toe on the counter this morning, right? Or that's why I, you know, that's why I had a bad day at work. Or, you know, that's why I got the flu, you know, because God, you know, I realize I've been offending God and he's doing the same thing to me that I do to other people because I only understand God through my lens of how I deal with things. And so if, I, if you get forgiveness wrong, you start to project that onto God and you start to think that, that God has all these little microaggressions against you because he's disappointed in you and so he, he's getting back at you the way you get back at others. And you then start to even begin to doubt and wonder if you are even saved. Does God even still love me anymore? He must have cut me out of his circle of acquaintances because I've offended him so much. I mean, that's what I do with people who offend me. I cut them out. And if God forgives the way I forgive or doesn't forgive the way I forgive, then that must be what God is doing. And you see, if we get forgiveness wrong in our life, it starts to project onto God. And we get a horrible, evil, distorted picture of God. Because here's the truth about God. He is not punishing you with little microaggressions. God is not against you. God is for you. When you sin, God has already fully paid that debt. He knows your sin. He knows it how much it costs. It cost him his son on the cross. He's already settled that debt 2,000 years ago. He doesn't have to make you stub your toe to pay for being a bad Christian on Monday morning. If you don't understand the doctrine of forgiveness, then you don't understand God. And you start to wonder where you stand with him. Not because you don't understand the doctrine of salvation, but because you have a distorted view of the doctrine of forgiveness. This is why forgiveness is so important that we get it right. 
If you get biblical forgiveness wrong in your own life, then that distortion gets projected onto God and it twists up your view of him and it twists up your view of your relationship with him and you start to live in doubt of whether God is somehow out to get you for what you've done. And that is evil because that is not God at all. Listen, God is not storing up resentment against you when you sin. Because God has forgiven your sin and he's accepted the cost of your sin and Jesus has taken the punishment for your sin so that it's all paid for and it can never be brought up again. Forgiveness is the gospel. And so, as a result of understanding forgiveness in this story of Joseph here, some of you may have some forgiving to do. Maybe you have some forgiveness that you've been kind of taking back. Or maybe you haven't realized that maybe you've not forgiven as much as you thought you've forgiven. And so you might have some forgiveness to do. I'll leave you with that. But this morning, some of you need to know the forgiveness of God and that it's there for you, that you can receive it, that you can have your relationship with God set right and that it will be as if it was never wrong. And you can take that broken, flawed view of the world and view of yourself and you can turn away from that and you can turn towards the light and the life that God has to offer. God wants to take off the old you and put on the new you. And here's the thing. Just like with Joseph's brothers, if you're in that spot today, it will be distressing. It's distressing still for some of us Christians. When we turn to God in prayer and we turn to the Son, the favored Son, Jesus, and we realize, just like Joseph's brothers did, that we are finally face-to-face with the one that we have offended, it starts just a little bit in fear and distress because it's like, Okay, I am now standing before the brother that I sinned against. I am now standing before the Jesus who I've offended. But Jesus, just like Joseph, doesn't leave you there. He does not leave you there for a second. He says, come to me. Come into my arms. You're my children. You're my brothers. I want to forgive you. Look at how Joseph words it at the end. So powerful. Such a powerful picture here of the forgiveness that is for us in Christ. He says, come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen. And you shall be near me. You and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you. That's Joseph saying that. That's Jesus saying that. He is ready to draw you near in forgiveness. He weeps for his brothers and sisters to recognize him, to see that he has died and gone into the grave ahead of them and lives again so that he can bring them life. That's forgiveness. That's biblical forgiveness. And it's there for us today. Let's pray. Father God, chapter 44 and 45 are just so incredible. You have painted with a huge brush this story of repentance and forgiveness and shown us in the person of Joseph just a foreshadowing. And the key word there is shadow. Just a shadow of the greatness that is your son, Jesus Christ. And so, Father, I pray for us as we do our homework from this and as we reconsider these verses 
in the weeks ahead that we could learn very practical things about true forgiveness as we've looked at three really key things. But above that, beyond that, far greater than that, I pray that we would grasp, truly grasp what your forgiveness is for us. That if we trust in your son, if we come before him, the one that we have accused and the one that we have offended, the one that we have sinned against, and we go through that little bit of distress to get there and fear, you will suddenly show us by your Holy Spirit that we have nothing to fear because your favored son welcomes us with open arms. He wants us to be near. So Lord, I pray this morning by your Holy Spirit that if it be your will, that that miracle of salvation would happen even now. That those who have counted themselves far from you as strangers and aliens, for those who think that you are angry at them, that they would come to you and receive your forgiveness. And they would start a whole new life close to you in the land of Goshen. Them and their children and their children's children. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.